0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. Uh, We have been considering as a church the theme of living the gospel, and as we've been considering this theme, we've been giving attention to Romans chapter 6 through 8, and right now we're in Romans chapter 7. And uh, we're continuing to work through this chapter verse by verse, and this morning we will look at verses 7 through 12. So if you're using one of the Bibles that we uh, provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 943, page 943. I'll actually begin reading in verse 1, and uh, I'll read through to verse 12. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 7, What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. And through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that in these moments as we turn to Your Word now, that You would lead and guide our time by Your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to think carefully about Your Word. We pray that we would understand it faithfully. And Lord, we pray that by the power of Your Word, that You would awaken us, Lord, to what is true and good and right and righteous and holy. And Lord, we pray that by the power of Your Spirit, we would walk in Your ways and we would walk according to Your Word. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, the question that Paul is seeking to answer in our text this morning is found in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. So you see it there. In verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Now, that may seem to be a very strange question to you. Is the law sin? And you might respond, of course not. Of course the law is not sin. Why would Paul even ask such a question? But if we trace Paul's line of thinking through the book of Romans, we will see that it's not unreasonable for Paul to pose this question. Now, as I seek to explain to you why it's reasonable for Paul to pose this question, I need to establish first that there is, in fact, a moral law that governs the universe. This is actually, in our own day, a debated point. Last week I mentioned That this is where C.S. Lewis actually begins his classic work entitled, Mere Christianity. He wrote, quote, but the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining it's not fair, end of quote. So, we all have this sense of a moral right and wrong. And we especially experience this when someone does us wrong, when someone breaks a promise. It's not fair. And this is a problem for those who deny the existence of God. It's a problem for those who say, who, who deny the existence of God and then try to appeal to some kind of moral standard. How do they account for this sense of a universal? Morality, if there is no transcendent God who is a moral being. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, states it this way, "...when secularists endorse human dignity, rights, and the responsibility in order to eliminate human suffering, they are indeed exercising religious faith in some kind of supernatural transcendent reality." To hold that human beings are the product of nothing but the evolutionary process of the strong eating the weak, but then to insist that nonetheless every person has a human dignity to be honored is an enormous leap of faith against all evidence to the contrary, end of quote. This week, actually, I was uh, came across some videos that were highlighting the hunting prowess of cheetahs. Of course, I had to watch. And there was in this video, this one video, about a six-foot, I guess, crocodile, alligator. I can't really tell the difference between the two. And the cheetah slowly sneaks up behind the croc. we'll call it a crocodile, the crocodile leaps onto his back and bites the back of his neck. And then he drags him into the water. And the cheetah and the crocodile are fighting against one another, but the cheetah is able to maintain control and he continually, repeatedly, takes the crocodile under the water and holds him there for extended periods of time until he drowns him. And then he pulls the crocodile back up on the shore and he eats him. Now philosophical naturalists will point to that and say, See? Survival of the fittest. And then they will tell us that this is the principle by which all things came into existence and by which all things are governed and derived. That there is no God, there is no transcendent morality, there is no ultimate lawgiver. This is it. This is the governing principle of the universe. Kill or be killed. And now to jump from that idea to the notion that every person has human dignity, Tim Keller points out, is an enormous leap of faith. Where do you base such a claim? How, given their worldview, can they make such a claim to morality that Every person, regardless of how attractive they are or unattractive, how smart or dull, how athletic or unathletic, how tall or short, how productive or dependent, how successful or ordinary, all of us have inherent value. How do you get that from kill or be killed? Christianity can account for morality. And there's so much we could say about this. But the Bible teaches us that there is a God who created the universe. And this God is an eternal moral being. And His moral character is reflected in the universe that He has created. But here's the challenge. And this is part of what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here in Romans chapter 7. This moral reality exists... But the Bible teaches us that apart from divine revelation, apart from God revealing Himself to us, we won't know how to properly relate to this moral code, to this moral law. So in Romans, Paul is teaching us how it is that we should think about and relate to God's law. In Romans chapters 1 through 5, so the first five chapters in the book of Romans, Paul teaches us how we should Paul teaches us that we cannot be justified or we cannot be made right before God through the law. In these chapters, we read that we have broken God's law and that only Jesus lived a life perfectly consistent with God's law. And he died on the cross to suffer the penalty that we deserve, the punishment we deserve for our law breaking so that if we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, we can be forgiven and made right with God. Now in Romans chapter 6 through 8, which we have been looking at, and especially chapter 7, which we're in now, Paul goes on to teach us that we cannot be sanctified by the law. So we can't be saved by the law, but now we learn we cannot be sanctified by the law. That means as Christians we can't grow in holiness. We can't become more and more like Jesus simply by knowing the law. In fact, we saw this last week in the latter part of the verses that we looked at in Romans chapter 7. We saw there that it's actually through belonging to Jesus. It's actually through being in relationship with Jesus. It's actually by depending upon the power of God's Holy Spirit that we're enabled to grow up into Jesus, that we're enabled to live lives that increasingly reflect the character of God's moral law. So Paul has taught us we can't be saved by the law, we can't be sanctified by the law. And here's the thing. It seems up to this point in Romans that Paul has been saying a lot of negative things about the law. And this would have been shocking to Paul's Jewish contemporaries, to those who knew the law and loved the law. Listen to some of the things that Paul has said in Romans about the law. In Romans chapter 3 verse 20, Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Or in Romans chapter 3 verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or Romans chapter 4 verse 13 and 14, the promise to Abraham was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Or Romans chapter 5 verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Or Romans chapter 6 verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. Or in the immediate chapter that we're studying now, Romans chapter 7, Paul says this in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead. Again, in verse 5, he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Or in verse 6, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we would serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Over and over and over again, it seems that Paul is saying negative things about God's law. It cannot save us. It cannot sanctify us. This would have been shocking to Paul's Jewish opponents. And we could imagine them responding by saying, well, if the law cannot save us, and the law cannot sanctify us, then what is the purpose of the law? Does the law have any use? If the law actually arouses sin in us and results in death, then are you saying, Paul, that the law of God is sin? That's the question. That's the question that Paul is wrestling with and addressing here in Romans chapter 7. And it's an important question. Because there is a moral dimension, there is a moral reality to this life that we all have to deal with. The Bible calls it the law of God. And apart from God's revelation, we will not understand how to properly think about or relate to that law. So this is the question. Is the law sin? And Paul's answer is no. In fact, actually, it's by no means. And then Paul goes on to make four statements regarding the relationship between the law and sin. And this serves as our outline this morning, okay? So I'm going to mention these now. These are the four statements. You probably, I just want to go ahead and warn you, you probably won't get them all now, but I will repeat them as we go along, okay? So the first statement is this, the law reveals sin. The second statement Sin through the law produces sin. The third statement, sin through the law deceives and kills. And the fourth statement, the law is not sin, the law is holy. So let's consider the first statement the law reveals sin. Look there in verse 7 of chapter 7, and we read these words What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So you see there in chapter 7, he says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law, this is where the statement that I made comes from, the law reveals sin. It's through the law that we come to know sin. And then notice this, that Paul then specifically lands on the 10th commandment. So you see there, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now we're going to return to this later on in the passage, but it's worth asking the question here, why does Paul focus on the 10th commandment? There's 10 of them. Why does he choose to focus on the 10th commandment? Well, the commandment to not covet explicitly addresses the inward desires and wants of the heart. You see, on the face of things, all the other commandments deal with external actions. So, for example, you shall not make a graven image, or you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, or you shall not steal, or you shall not murder. But the tenth commandment Undeniably addresses not just external actions, things that we do outwardly, but rather addresses the wants and desires of the heart. And Paul says it's through this commandment in particular, "You shall not covet that he came to know what sin is." Now our natural, if we just think about this idea that the law reveals sin, our natural tendency is to resist and suppress this work of the law. However, what Paul is wanting to teach us here is that although it's counterintuitive, it is a blessing to know our sin. Think about this. Without the knowledge of our sin, we can do great damage to ourselves, to our families, to our children, to our community. But with a proper knowledge of our sin, we will be compelled to turn to God for redemption and for mercy. Paul makes a similar statement. This is not the only place that he makes this point that the law reveals sin. He makes a similar statement in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. There he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. But I want you to note the larger context in which Paul makes this statement. In Romans 3, verse 20, he says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, what Paul is saying is that as our lives are put are placed according to the standard side by side to the law, we see that we are in a deficit, that we, we don't match the standard of the law. We come up short. But it's in recognizing that that we realize we need redemption, we need salvation, and the good news of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ lived up to the perfect standard of the law. He was altogether righteous. And so in seeing our deficit, in seeing our deficiency, if we turn to Him and trust in Him, He will grant us His perfect righteousness so that before God we are declared justified. The law reveals sin, and it is a blessing to know our sin if we turn to Christ in faith. Second principle is this. Sin through the law produces sin. Sin through the law produces sin. Look there in verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So notice the principle here. The law is not sin, but sin co-ops the law to produce sin in us. Now, again, this statement that Paul is making here, you've got to think about this in particular from kind of the mindset of Paul's Jewish opponents This statement would have been shocking. And in some ways it's shocking to us today. Notice Paul does not say, through the commandment, I forsook covetousness and I learned what it was to be content and joyful. Now we might think that's what Paul would say, but that's not what Paul says. Instead, Paul says, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me. Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And again, this is not the only place in Romans where Paul makes this point. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Not the law came in to decrease the trespass, but the law came in to increase the trespass. Or in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. Not subdued by the law, not minimized by the law, but our sinful passions were aroused by the law. And they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now what is Paul talking about? Have you ever thought about the law that way? That the law of God works in such a way that it actually arouses sin within us. So Paul has taught us that the law functions to reveal sin in us, but here he is telling us that there is also this dynamic in which the law can arouse or aggravate or produce sin in us. St. Augustine, early church father, gives testimony to this experience in his classic work, Confessions. He's thinking back on a time when he was a boy before he was converted, and he writes these words quote there was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit one stormy night we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away we took off a we took off with a huge load of pears not to feast upon ourselves but to throw them to the pigs though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit they were nice pears But it was not the pair that made my wretched soul covet. For I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? It was the pleasure of acting against the law. In order that I, a prisoner under rules, might experience a counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden the desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing end of quote do you see what augustine is saying there there was this pear tree some boys there together you know and he says we stole the pears and the reason why we stole them was not because we were particularly hungry It wasn't because the pears were such so nice. Actually, we had better pears at home. I just stole them out of a desire to steal. I stole them out of a desire to be free from rules and regulations. I stole them because I wanted to know that even though it was wrong, independent of how it affected anybody else, I could do what I wanted to do. And in that was my delight. Or we could say it this way. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Proverbs 9, verse 17 says it this way. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. You see, it's not so much that we delight in the water and drinking it, but at times we delight in the fact that it's stolen, that we were able to take it. Sometimes it's not that we delight in the bread that we're eating as much as we're doing it in secret and in deceit, and it brings delight to our hearts that we are able to do what we want to do. Have you ever known this experience? Has the law ever incited in you sin and rebellion against God? I've shared this story before, but I think it's particularly applicable given this passage. When I was a little boy, my aunt was watching me and she was cooking. And so she placed me on the counter beside the stove and she looked me in the eyes and said very clearly, Do not touch the stove because it's hot. Now what was I to do? She was obviously trying to keep something good from me. Right? She clearly didn't want me to have fun. She clearly didn't want to share what she knew that was so great about the stove. And by the way, who was she to tell me not to touch the stove? I couldn't stand for it. In fact, once she told me not to touch the stove, that red eye on the stove looked fantastically wonderful. Before, I probably hadn't even cared about the stove. I wouldn't even have looked at the stove. But once she told me, don't touch the stove, I couldn't imagine not touching the stove. And so what did I do? You know the story. I touched the stove and I screamed and yelled and cried and cried and cried. Have you ever had a similar experience? Seizing Sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produces all kinds of sin within me. In other words, the commandment comes to us. And even though we know that it's righteous and good and right, our inward self, our inward dwelling sin revolts against God and revolts against his authority. And so what Paul is teaching us here is that the law can reveal sin. But it cannot finally give you victory over sin. In fact, at times, the law will speak to you. And instead of indwelling sin in your life, submitting and yielding to the law, it will all the more be inclined to bow up and resist and rebel against God. Which results in more sin. So, the law reveals sin. Sin through the law produces sin. And then third, sin through the law deceives and kills. Sin through the law deceives and kills. Look there in verses 9 through 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Now, notice here that Paul is giving personal testimony, so he's not just speaking about this as an abstract idea, he's speaking about it out of his own personal experience. This actually starts back in verse 7, he says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And when Paul reflects later on, as we read verses 9 through 11, when Paul reflects on the commandment to not covet, Paul acknowledges, this one got me. In verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, I think what Paul is saying here is, I thought I was doing pretty well. I thought I was a good moral person. But he goes on in verse 9 to say, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now we don't know exactly when this happened in Paul's life, but we can imagine how it might have happened. Paul might have been reflecting on the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And Paul probably thought to himself, that's right. I can't even think of the possibility of bowing down to another god and worshiping him. I worship the God of Israel. And then he thinks, okay, working through the commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And Paul says, no, I'm not careless with God's name. Yahweh, the name of God is precious and I revere his name. He works down through the commandments. He comes to, you shall not steal. And Paul thinks to himself, no, I would not steal. I would not take something from someone else that is rightfully theirs. God would hold me to account. And then he comes to you shall not covet. And ah, now Paul cannot deny what his conscience is so clearly telling him that he has coveted, that he has sinfully longed for and desired what God has not chosen to give him. He has sinfully longed for and desired what is not his. And Paul recognizes that due to the sinfulness of his own heart, the commandment to not covet actually is an inciting more covetousness within him. At times, Paul must have sensed within his own heart this spirit of rebellion. Why should I not covet? Don't I deserve what others have? Perhaps I deserve it even more so. I've given my life in service to God. Why should they enjoy what I am denied? And the sin that had lied quiet and dormant, Paul says, is alive. Now, let me clarify here that it is not wrong to desire good things. God is a God who delights to give us good gifts, right? And we can ask Him for good things. But covetousness, which Paul is speaking of here, is characterized by an inordinate desire. We could say An excessive or out-of-portion desire that is not content with God and with what God has provided. And in this way, covetousness is the sin beneath all sins. It is the root of all sins. I think this is one of the reasons why Paul lands on covetousness. Think about it. When we are not content with God and when we are not content with what He has chosen to provide for us, what do we do? We desire. We long for that what is not ours. And when we begin to sin, we desire it excessively. We desire it out of proportion. We have exaggerated desires. And so what do we do? We want what we want. So we disobey our parents. We steal. We commit adultery. We murder, we slander in order to get what we desire, what we covet. And this sense, covetousness, is the sin beneath all sins. It is the root of all sins. And Paul says, when the commandment came to me and I began to examine my own heart, sin came alive. And what happened? When the commandment came, sin came alive and I now Paul possesses this acute awareness of his own sinfulness it it seems that now that Paul has seen it he can't unsee it now that he's seen it he sees it everywhere And we could imagine that Paul, as he reflects on his own life, he comes to the realization it's not just that one day, years ago, in that moment of weakness, I coveted for a moment. But no, as I reflect upon my life, I realize that my heart is full of covetousness. That in so many ways my life has been characterized by covetousness. And this is what Paul means when he says, I died. It resulted in spiritual death. Any hope now that Paul had of his own moral sufficiency that he could justify himself before God has died. And this is especially relevant given who we know Paul was. Paul was a good Jew, right? A moral Jew. He was a good Jewish boy growing up having learned the law like so many of the children in our congregation today growing up in a Christian home and being taught the Bible. But there came a time in Paul's life when the law he knew aroused sin within him and then struck his conscience and he was awakened to the sinfulness of his sin. He was awakened to the gravity of his sin, of his rebellion against God. And it was only then that Paul came to know and experience God's grace and salvation. And listen, my friends, if anyone is to become a Christian, they must first encounter the reality of God's law. They must first know that they are sinners. In this way, the law must slay us Isn't that the word Paul uses here? It must kill any desires that we have of self-justification. And only then can we experience the hope and resurrection life of Jesus. So the law reveals sin. Sin through the law produces sin. Sin through the law deceives and kills. And then fourth and finally, the law is not sin. The law is holy. Look there in verse 12. Romans chapter 7 verse 12. Paul writes, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So here the principle is the law is not sin but the law is holy. And this is really the answer to the question, right? We began with back in chapter 7 verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? Paul's immediate answer is by no means. But now here in verse 12, we get the fuller answer. So the law is holy and commandment is holy and righteous and good. In other words, what Paul is saying here is the law, at the end of the day, the law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And sin uses the law to produce sin in us, to deceive us, and finally to kill us. Which brings us back to the larger point that Paul is intending to make in Romans chapter 7 and in Romans chapter 6 through 8. The larger point in part is that the law is holy and righteous and good, but the law cannot save us. Listen to how Martin Luther states it. Luther says, quote, our preaching does not stop with the law. That would lead to wounding without binding up. Striking down and not healing, killing and not making alive, driving down to hell and not bringing back up, humbling and not exalting. Therefore, we must also preach grace and the promise of forgiveness. This is the means by which faith is awakened and properly taught. Without the word of grace, the law, contrition, penitence, and everything else are done and taught in vain. In other words, the law cannot save us, the law wounds, and it's the gospel that heals. It's when the law convicts us of sin that then the gospel gives us the promise of forgiveness and grace in Christ. So the larger point that Paul is trying to make is the law is holy and righteous and good, but the law cannot save us. In addition, the larger point that Paul is trying to make is that the law is holy and righteous and good, but the law cannot sanctify us. We saw this again last week. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. And again in verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So the law does not possess the power to change us. We are changed and transformed, as Paul states here, as we belong to Christ and as we depend upon the power of His Spirit. Again, listen to how Martin Luther states this. This is so beautiful. He says, quote, a man would have to be an idiot to write a book of laws for an apple tree telling it to bear apples and not thorns, seeing that the apple tree will do it naturally and far better than any laws or teaching can prescribe, end of quote. Now, what does Luther mean by that? Well, just think about You have an apple tree and you write down on a placard, bear apples, and you set it by the apple tree. Now, is that going to do anything for the apple tree to produce apples. That's law, right? Do it. Bear apples. No. Why will the tree bear apples? Because it has a life within itself which naturally produces fruit, apples. And so it is with us in Christ. That's why Paul says you must belong to Christ. Christ. You must commune with Christ. You must abide in Christ. Because as Christ is in you, and you are in Christ, Christ in you and through you will naturally bear fruit that brings glory to God. And the law can't do that. The law can tell you to do it, but has no power to do it. It's only Christ in you that bears fruit, that brings glory to God. So the law reveals sin. Sin through the law produces sin. Sin through the law deceives and kills. The law is not sin. The law is holy. and all of this, Paul is trying to teach us about the law in order to point to the greater reality that although the law is holy and righteous and good, it cannot save us nor sanctify us. That only happens as we are united to Christ by faith and abide in Him and He bears fruit through us. In a few moments, we're going to take communion together, and this morning we have been reminded of God's law, which was revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai. And what Paul has really taught us in this passage is that when God's law works in our lives, Mount Sinai, as it were, thunders and brings to the surface what we have tried to suppress, and our consciences are stricken at Mount Sinai, we come to realize, like never before, that we have transgressed God's law. We are sinners. We are guilty. We deserve God's judgment. This is what it means that the law kills. But in the Bible, there is another mountain that corresponds to Mount Sinai, and that is Mount Calvary. And on Mount Calvary, Jesus took our transgressions against the law upon Himself, and He suffered the penalty of the law in our place so that the death sentence that the law had pronounced against us was executed against him so that we might be forgiven, declared righteous, and have life with God. This is what we remember and this is what we celebrate this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word And God, we thank You for how Your Word so clearly reveals to us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we cannot deny the reality of Your law, Your moral code in this world. Help us to understand how to properly relate to that law. Lord, we pray that we would humble ourselves and receive the conviction of the law, But then, Lord, we pray that we would not look to the law to justify ourselves or to make ourselves more like Christ, but rather look to Christ in faith, knowing Your true forgiveness in Him and knowing the power that He gives us by Your Spirit to walk in newness of life. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, Lord, we pray that You would speak to our own minds and hearts, that we would be reminded afresh of the sacrifice of Jesus Lord, we pray that we would forsake and abhor any sin in our own lives and turn from sin, that we would look to Christ and trust in Him afresh and anew. And Lord, we pray that You would fill us afresh with the hope of Your mercy and grace and redemption, of Your full forgiveness, and help us to walk in the joy that You have granted to us in the sacrifice of Your Son. And it's in His name we pray.